Hey everyone, and welcome to the Joseph Wells Podcast. I'm your host, Joseph Wells. This is the third episode of my series on national service, where I'll be exploring the idea from a variety of angles through a number of conversations with experts. At the end of March, I'll publish a 15,000-word essay on the topic as part of David Perel's Rite of Passage Fellowship. I recently published a shorter piece introducing my thoughts on compulsory national service. Find it at the link in the show notes. My guest today is Carrie Murphy, a current employee at Intel and a former New York City public school teacher. After college, Carrie spent two years in the Peace Corps, where she served as a teacher on a banana plantation in Costa Rica. Carrie and I discuss her time in the Peace Corps, the benefit of bringing real-world experience to the classroom, the controversial nature of most important American institutions, and much more. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Carrie Murphy, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for inviting me. Sure. So a little background for our listeners. You are my third guest who I met through Rite of Passage, David Perel's online writing course. And I think your perspective will be a nice compliment to my other two guests, Deepan Patel and Jervis Tan. So Deepan spent a few months serving as a teacher aide, teacher assistant in a school in rural India before going to college. And Jervis served about two years of mandatory military service in Singapore. So I'm pretty excited to hear about your time serving in the Peace Corps because it's, like I said, a nice, a nice compliment to those experiences. And I think it'll give us a good perspective. But before we get to that, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, like where you're from, where you went to school, what you do for work, that kind of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I grew up in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Um, my parents are actually not, not from this country. They're from Ireland. Um, <clears throat> and I went to Notre Dame um, for undergrad. Um, and I didn't quite know what I was going to do when I went there. I, I think I started in architecture um, uh, and then quickly toggled to history and sociology um, after having read something about, you know, the American public school system and, and understanding that it wasn't quite the meritocracy that I assumed it was, um, uh, that's kind of where uh, my interest pulled me. Um, and I knew that I wanted to do service post-graduation, uh, but I just didn't know in what form. Um, uh, I think, as you could well imagine, Notre Dame does have quite a tradition of, of service post-graduation. Um, they have, you know, I was looking at programs like Jesuit Volunteer Corps, and they had their own um, program getting um, graduates to teach in in underfunded Catholic schools um, as well. That you know, uh, Teach for America was was quite big at the time as well. And um, yeah, obviously, Peace Corps has been uh, an institution that's been around since I guess the, the mid '60s, um, and so that was another. Um, one that I looked at as well. And actually, I ended up choosing to, to move into Peace Corps service. Sure. So um, I know you, mm-hmm. were, you were interested in, in teaching, correct? Yes. That's, that's actually right. So that's where what struck my interest was I, I was actually in a, in a freshman English seminar. This was a you know, taught by a grad student, and they basically could do whatever topic they wanted to do, and, and he chose to, to 
to do that topic of just kind of American public schools and, and kind of um, <clears throat> some of the the issues that plague them. And I was it was kind of eye opening for me just not having had experience um, in that. Uh, I had you know I had gone I, I had actually gone to private school growing up and I I didn't really know that that was um, the situation. And so for me, I, I think it was um, eye-opening and, and it made me want to, to do something about that. Um, and I just didn't, you know, at the time I didn't know what, and then when you're graduating college, I was like, well, you know, you're 22 years old. Like, I mean, you certainly could bring all of that energy and vigor to the classroom, but I also felt like teaching was um, something that <clears throat> would require a good amount of preparation for um because it just it, it seemed to me like a very important job <laughs> um and so I decided instead of going directly into teaching that I would um do some international service I think also at the time I was like listen you know thinking to myself I'm 22 you know I don't have any responsibilities who knows when I'm 32 what that's going to look like and this seems like a great opportunity to um you know, get some internet, get some more experience in the world and then bring that back to the classroom. And so that's ultimately the direction I decided to go in. So I think that's a, a great approach. Um, you know, when, when you're shaping the minds of America's youth, it helps to bring some life perspective to that, right? And I think a lot of teachers come right out of college and there's nothing wrong with that, but if you can go and do something like you did in the Peace Corps and understand how other cultures live and, and you know, have a little bit of world experience, I think that really helps the children that you're teaching. Um, so Absolutely. I think it was a good opportunity for me to, <laughs> again, like you're saying, kind of load myself up with a little bit more experience. I think have, if I had gone directly to a classroom instead of um, having done that, it would have been you know, I would have been a very different teacher. Um, and I, you know, ultimately I think it helped. I helped, I think it helped my longevity in the classroom, to be honest. Um, and I think that that also ultimately helped. Um, I, yeah, I can talk a little bit more about the teaching experience too, because I taught alongside many people who did come directly out of undergrad and, um, and sure. taught the struggles as well there. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to come back to the, the teaching aspect later because I'm, I'm interested in that and I think that ties into national service as well. But first, I'd like to hear about the Peace Corps and your experience. So maybe you could just give us kind of a high level overview of how the Peace Corps works. Um, like Things like, is there an application process? Do you choose where you go? Is there a defined period of service? What types of projects do you work on? Just, you know, for somebody who really has no familiarity with the Peace Corps, what does it look like? Yeah, absolutely. So um, you, there is an application process. So I applied as a senior in, and, and you can apply, you, you know, you could be a mid-career professional, you could be, you know, you can apply at any time. It does get a little bit more challenging, um, I think, later in life, because there is a language component, and they want to make sure that you pass that, right? Like, so they want you kind of working at the local level, right? Like speaking the native language, sure. um, whatever that may be. You do not get to choose um, where you go nor what you do. Um, that being said, a, a little bit of your background would dictate kind of the projects that you would become involved in. 
Um, like, for example, I didn't have an engineering background, so I was not going to be building latrines, right? Like, right. Um, that's not something that they would have necessarily sent me out to do. Um, <clears throat> and so you can, as through the application process, you can kind of say, you know, I have some, if you do have some language skills, you can highlight those, right? Like if you, if you're, if you're able to speak French or Spanish, which, you know, a lot of um, students out of American schools generally go to the two languages most um, spoken. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, that's something that you can highlight and they, they can choose to take advantage of or ignore. Um, and then they basically offer you, uh, well, so I, assuming you pass the application process, I, I do understand that it is somewhat competitive, so I, I don't know the numbers at all. Um, so assuming you pass the, the, the application process, they'll offer you to go um, basically a, an offer of service. Um, and um, for me, I accepted my first offer. Um, it, because it, it kind of was exactly where, like, in the world, generally, I wanted to go. It was in Latin America, and it was um, generally what I wanted to do was working with children and youth. So for me, I was like, well, this couldn't have worked out better, right? Like, this is where I want to go. But I do know that one of uh, my fellow volunteers um, had 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 initially received a different offer um, that she she wasn't prepared to 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 accept. Um, and so she ended up turning that down and then they came back to her with another one. Obviously she ended up, um, serving with me in Costa Rica. Well, not with me, but you know, also alongside. Right. Right. So you do have kind of some say in whether you're going to go or not. It's not, you know, once you get accepted, you're in and you're going where they tell you. Yeah. I guess I didn't know that I didn't know that you could refuse. I found that out once I was in, <laughs> but it didn't matter for me because like I said, like they gave me exactly what I wanted, like where I wanted to go and exactly what I wanted to do. So it was like, well, I, you know, I, I, you know, had they come back and said like, Hey, we'd like you to, you know, manage construction in like, you know, Siberia or wherever it might've I, you know, I might've just still said, yes, Joe, I don't know <laughs> because I didn't actually know I had that. Um, but I think you can kind of make your preferences be known through the application process. Um, but, uh, and then I, you know, one of my, uh, one of my fellow um, Peace Corps volunteers in, in my cohort was, you know, told me initially they asked her to go to Afghanistan. Um, and yeah, she, she wasn't prepared to do that and um so she said that that's not going to work for her and so she ended up in in my group okay yeah i could see maybe not wanting to go to afghanistan so Mm. once yeah this was 2003 so yeah uh, yeah yeah. (laughs) different time then right yeah for sure so once you're accepted into the program is there a training period um and then you know once you're in how long do you serve for um there is a training period so <clears throat> there's a quick a quick kind of like gather in in america like before you all fly off to the country or at least there was for us like in miami and that was like a two-day like you know here's what you need to know before you get to the country type thing and then we had um 
like three months in country training. Mm -hmm. So, but in the capital city and we were still, so we were kind of spread out across San Jose because my service was in Peace Corps. So we were spread out across San Jose um, and we would take language training in our um, host communities. And we were kind of spread out by, you know, in groups of three or four um, in the, in those smaller communities. And we would take daily language lessons and we were living with a host family there. And then um, we ended up on Fridays, we would go to the Peace Corps office, like in the, just for the sake of conversation, say it was in downtown, right? Mm Mm-hmm we would all go to a central location um, and then we would do some of the more, this is how you get involved with the community. This is, these are some of the projects or these are projects that you guys can think about getting started. And um, uh, so that was three months of in, in country training before you even got to your site. And then the length of service, I mean, it is a two year service, right? So it's, it's the three months in country plus another two years of service. Okay. Um, that being said, right. Like I, I, you know, we started as a cohort of 16 um, and we finished as a cohort of 11, you know, there was one couple, they, you can also serve as a couple. There was one couple that ended up getting pregnant. And so that's not something that they um, were willing to support um, <laughs> Peace Corps. So they ended up leaving. Um, there was, uh, you know, just for various reasons of, you know, in people's lives or for sure. whatever reason, their service ends. Um, uh, so it's, yes, it, it's to your service, but you're not right. Like you're not, you don't necessarily owe anything after the, you know, if you're, if you're not able to make it the full length right. of service, I guess. So while you're serving, are you able to come home like for holidays to visit family, that kind of stuff? How does that work? Yeah. So there was, I think every country runs it a little differently. Um, and I obviously was, well, not obviously, but I was very close. My, I grew up in Florida and I was serving in Costa Rica, like literally it's a two and a half hour flight. Um, so it's not that like, it took me longer to get to the capital city from my site than it did, you know, to actually get home. Right. Like if I was, yeah. Um, that being said, they did have like, you like I'm not remembering the length of time, but like certainly during training, no, you can't. Um, and then it was I think it was either the first three or six months of service. They didn't want you taking any any vacation or they didn't want you taking um, any time away necessarily from your site. So you didn't have days you could burn um, elsewhere. And I kind of understand that because in order for you to really like, build community you need you need time right like you need time to be like there and you know get to know folks and folks get to know you and that just it doesn't happen automatically um i think i was very lucky i my community was very open to me and you know i you know and fairly open as well but i think that doesn't happen quite as quickly for everyone um, and, uh, so I think it was the first, I, I want to say the first six months of my service part. So there's three months of training and then there's another six months of service that, um, they didn't really want you to have visitors or, um, take any time away. Then I, I'm pretty sure that the days that you 
accrue um, as you serve. I think it was like two days a month or something where you could kind of go out of your site. Um, the days that you accrue, can, you can use them as you as you want. You know, that means like you can use them to to travel within the country, right? Your host country to see some those spots, or um, you you could use them. You could save them all up and go home. You know, um, at some point during the year. Okay. So. Yeah, and that, and I think obviously living in Costa Rica, it was a more, uh, to to actually come back to the U.S. was a more affordable option than. You know, my actually my brother-in-law served in the Peace Corps in um, uh, Kenya. Uh, oh, wow. He did, I think, come home at least once in his service. Um, but yeah, so it, I I think I came home twice. I think I came home not the first, uh, the second Christmas that I was there, and then maybe one other time, almost like right before the end of my service, because I wanted to try to figure out what I was doing after. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So while you're serving, are you getting paid? Are you responsible for your own food and lodging? How, how, what are the logistics of it? Yeah. So I, I think it's, again, it's dependent on the, the, the Peace Corps operation in the specific country. But the way it worked in Costa Rica is you, you were um, paid, but the idea is that you're living at the level of the community that you're serving. And so for us, that meant um, and this was, again, we're going back to 2003, but um, for us, that meant that we were paid, you know, kind of what, you know, potentially a teacher would be paid um, in Costa Rica, which frankly was like $3,000 a year, right? And so $3,000 a year works in Costa Rica. <laughs> it doesn't work in America, obviously, but um, that's this is kind of rough, you know, rough estimates of what we were paid. and. We, uh, one of the things that they wanted for us was for us to stay with a host family, um, at, at least for the first year of service. Um, and that made sense culturally because if you look at um, uh, a lot of families in Costa Rica, folks wouldn't leave their home until they're married or, you know, even, even times when sometimes when they're married, they would still just stay in the same home, right? So it was a lot of intergenerational. Um, co-living. Um, okay. So for us, it really did make sense to be um, in the in the home um, with a with a host family. That being said, it didn't work out for everyone, and some people moved out on their own in their second year of service. Um, I I I had a great uh, connection with my host family. I'm still in touch with them today. Uh, oh, wow. They actually came to visit me in Seattle um, in. Uh, October. Um, and yeah, so I, everything worked out for me. And so I would pay my host family, um, my money, and then I would just live with them and then, um, eat with them. Um, you know, and there was like some side money if I needed to get from A to B or, you know, just supplement, but it wasn't, it wasn't like you were saving money month to month. It was right. like, it, it was all spent. Um, and then uh, what's nice is um, on like, this is not, I don't, I, well, I didn't access this money, but as you serve, you kind of accrue um, money. <laughs> so you accrued funds that were, uh, they called it your readjustment allowance. So you can well imagine after two years of serving, you know, abroad in a different country, you might not have um, 
a job set up right away for yourself when you get back. Right. Um, and so they, you have, after two years of service, you have that um, uh, readjustment allowance that accrues per the length of your service. So if your service is shorter, right, like, like I said, since I've had to leave for, for whatever reason, um, if, you're, if your service was shorter, um, it, the, the readjustment would just be less. Um, okay. That that was, yeah. So when you were serving, what did your day-to-day look like? What was your job? Um, yeah, just kind of walk me through a week. Yeah. So, so that was, that was, I think probably the most challenging for a lot of folks was initially figuring out what your job was um, because, well, it depends. So like if you were coming into a site where there was previously a Peace Corps volunteer, the community had a conception of like who you were and what you were doing and what you could try to do. That's like both a blessing and a curse because they're like, Oh, well, Rita didn't do it that way. Or, you know, well, we, you know, and so uh, my service, I was new. So like it was a new site. Um, so I was the first Peace Corps volunteer in that site. Um, so it, I think that was, it worked for me. Um, it kind of meant that um, I could help, you know, help the community understand, first of all, help assess the community's needs. I think that's part of it, right? Is like, what, where do we need help? And, or, you know, what parts of the community need um, an extra set of hands or, you know, how can we get, how can we use the resources that are here better? Um, And so for me, um, the, elementary school principal was instrumental in requesting the volunteer. Um, so I considered her one of my main um, stakeholders, right? You know, what she wanted to, to get done and accomplish. And I think she didn't, you know, again, new to the community, didn't have, um, she wasn't necessarily new, but um, <laughs> you kind of ask for something and then you don't know like what it's going to be or, or how it's going to play out. And so you kind of got to work together to figure that one out. Okay. Um, but again, my community was really open to me. So I think I had um, other, other volunteers who were like, I don't know, like my community, you know, I don't know anybody. And like we got there during um, what would be equivalently their summer break. Okay. The school's out. Right. Um, it was, it was in the winter, but it was their summer break. Um, and, um, you know, my community was like, Hey, we, we want you to help with this day camp. And like, you know, the next week I was in charge of like 60 kids (laughs) from like eight to like four or something ridiculous. And, you know, I was like, well, (laughs) my Spanish skills got very good very quickly (laughs) because that was baptism by fire. Um, And, you know, after that, so that, that was one thing is like, you know, I was running like some day camps in the community. Um, and then when school started, you know, I started chatting with the teachers and seeing, um, you know, where I could plug in there at both the elementary school and in the high school. And I ended up running some like kind of more basic, um, like self-esteem guidance, like what our guidance departments would do, right? Like what our guidance counselors would do, which is, you know, um, self-esteem workshops and things like that with the kids either after or during school. Um, I did, (laughs) I tried, um, it makes me laugh. I tried, 
um, running a like an ecology. We did like an environmental education seminar with third grade. And I think at the time I was like, you know, I think I want to be a teacher and you don't know what grade. And I did it with third grade. And I was like, yeah, that's not, that's not the grade. (laughs) (laughs) I I will not be teaching elementary school. Um, (laughs) Why was that? (laughs) It was just like, I think it was like the same group of kids that I had in the day camp. And, you know, there was like a little bit of like, Hey, that lady, like it's fun. You know, like this is the fun part of stuff. And, um, so I, um, I think it was just, I don't think I could have been the the person I needed to be, um, for elementary school kids. I think I was much better able to, to not be, not be like a not not trying to say you have to be a hard ass, but like you know, I was better able to um, discipline is not the right word either. I was better able to um, structure have a rational conversation, yeah, um, with the middle and high school kids. That um, makes sense, sure. Yeah, and I think I like I just you know that's getting a little bit into my teaching service, but I think I, there's different personality types that work for different. Um, grade levels of course of course yeah so So, and then yeah so then that was like really the first year was a lot of kind of workshops and getting to know and like a little bit more structure and then um, as I moved into my second year of service um, I was able to get a grant from Major League Baseball Um, we started a little league team that was really fun yeah (laughs) Um, and there I uh we also got a grant um, from USAID, um, and we started a community youth group um, and a, a youth center. Um, we didn't have to build anything, which was nice because that would have been um, quite a project. We, we were able to um, essentially take over a building that already existed. Um, and we just kind of filled it with. Wow, that's that's awesome! It sounds like you really, that, yeah, really made an impact in the community. Hmm. The community made an impact on me. So I think that's that's actually what this conversation is about, right? Like is how experiences like that can can help shape and grow um mold you as, as a person. And I don't know, I think um, I I don't know if America is necessarily better for my service or not, but I, I do know that I that that experience has helped me tremendously, um, both in my teaching service and also my time at Info. I'm sure, yeah. So uh, uh, probably three or four weeks ago on Twitter, I, I tweeted something about national service and you responded to it saying that you believe compulsory service would form a more integrated society and abate political polarization. So can you elaborate on that? Because the idea of compulsory service seems to be rather controversial. Um, so how do you see it creating a more integrated society? Well, so here, I think when you, okay. So in my Peace Corps service, one of the things um, people would sometimes say to me, right? Like I'm just, I, I look fairly different than, you know, a Costa Rican, you know, they knew I was American. They would say, even people who didn't know me specifically in my community or just passers by would say, "Oh, you're American, you know, that means you're a millionaire." 
And at first I would kind of chase at that and be like, no, like what? No. And like, I'm not a millionaire. And like, you know, like, but then I thought about it, like on the grand scale of things. And I thought about like where they were and what they were, you know, making. and like relatively, yeah, I am. I mean, I'm not, but like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I think that that is like potentially fair of them to say, you know, and, but having me there and me being not like, I guess this completely like for at least a good part of um, uh, the community, not like a complete stranger um, was helpful in breaking down those walls of like, what is an American? Like, how are they? Like, what do you know? So there's, there's that element, but now think about my own experience right like think about um where i grew up i grew up in fort lauderdale florida right i get my my folks are irish i went to notre dame you know i the the experience of people i was on a banana plantation just so you know I, the, the experience of people living and working on a banana plantation in costa rica is so 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 far from like where i grew up and um that that part of my life but at the end of the day, you know, I met people who I love dearly, right? Who, who, you know, to this day, like I, I, I still, you know, count like as really a, a large part of my life and like who I am. And just to be able to connect with people like other humans that have experienced so different from your own that, you know, from an outside view looks so different um, from, from who you are, I think is something that, like I would say, would abate political polarization. Um, there, I, didn't, I didn't have the opportunity to do this, but there was another program at Notre Dame that you would, during your spring break, you would go and work in Appalachia, right? So this is, this is domestic service. You would go and work in Appalachia and this is, you know, some of the poorest regions of the United States. Mm-hmm. And students would do the same thing. I mean, you were kind of in, in a student community, but um, you would kind of do the same thing. And you would have an opportunity to kind of work alongside and with folks, again, with very different experience on your own. Um, and so. so oops, sorry. No, I just I just wanted to say, I think this is a, a tremendously important point that you're making, and it's a theme that I've seen from these conversations now. Um, Deepan talked about something that he kind of coined the term a dual defense mindset. So when you belong to or assimilate with multiple cultures, you identify yourself as a part of that culture. And for him, it was being an American and being an Indian. So he felt part of both of those cultures where when he would go to India and hear people talk about stereotypes of people from the U.S., that would upset him. And similarly, when he was in the United States and he heard people talk about stereotypes of Indian people, that would upset him. And I think what he was getting at by this dual defense mindset is the more time you spend with people who are different from yourself, um, you grow to understand that they're not that different. You know, They're still humans and, and you still have a lot of things that you can identify with on, on, on a human level. And when you do that, I think you build empathy 
and you can take that experience back to wherever you live, whether it's, you know, Fort Lauderdale or New York City or the middle of Montana or Appalachia, like you were saying. And I think that's yeah. really what helps unite the country is having these different perspectives and understanding that this person grew up somewhere different from me. Maybe they speak a different language or you know, pray to a different God, but we're all people, you know? Yeah. And I guess I'm not even, so culturally, yes, there's some differences there. Um, but even like from like at a cross level, right? So when I started, fast forward to when I started at Intel, um, you know, I had um, teammates who would sometimes frankly get annoyed and annoyed at management or like, um, I think they had a tendency to look at very senior level management as a different, frankly, class of people, like almost dehumanizing. And, you know, I would always say to them, hey, listen, you got to understand, like, she's human. <laughs> you know, like, at the end of the day, like, she's actually not any different than you or me, right? Or he's not any different than you or me, and he's subject to these other and so this is getting into that, like, you know, the fundamental attribution error, which is, you know, we tend to, uh, you know, describe others with dispositional characteristics when it's really just based on the situation that they're in. And anyway, so, uh, but that all to me, like people are people applies what both when you're looking up, um, you know, quote unquote, looking up or quote unquote, looking down or sideways or whichever way. Um, and I, I think that that is helpful um, for our collective experience, right, is to be able to understand, I mean, can you ever really truly understand the world through someone else's eyes? You can't, right? But um, you can get closer to it, I think. Sure. Yeah. And that's, so it's interesting because I wanted to ask you about the Peace Corps in the sense of, do you think it could help? integrate U.S. society, even though the service is basically exclusively performed in other countries. But you kind of just helped me shift my perspective here from um, serving within the United States to build bonds between the people serving to a perspective of being in a different culture and understanding how, how uh, people live differently and how you can bring that back and it helps you bond with the people in the United States. So any people, right? Like any people. So if you're, it, it, it really does. And I just do want to make sure that I clear up some, some people, I, there might be a misunderstanding that peace force service, you're, you're in the community alone. You're not with other volunteers. Okay. So that, that was one, that was one challenge that I kind of, had to kind of get over before I accepted the service because a lot of other programs you will serve with other volunteers in community. And so you're kind of able to, to work together. Um, uh, but Peace Force, you know, wants you to basically set up that community within the community that's there. And I think that's a really important element of the, the service is that, you know, I was, I was the only Peace Force volunteer in my community um, for like, the two years of service. That's interesting. That's not something that I, I knew beforehand. And um, it's got to be challenging well, at first, right? Oh, very. I, I remember, so we had uh, basically during our training, three months of training, we had 
you know, like an overnight in the community or like a, like a two, like a week or something, there was like a period where you went there for a little bit and then came back kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, Oh my God, I got to tell, you know, and I was just, I got to tell so-and-so this happened or whatever. And then I was like, wait a second, what's going to happen when there's like, when I'm not going back next week, (laughs) you know, like what's going to, like, where, where is that? you know, going to go. And so I ended up writing, um, a lot, uh, and reading a lot, right. Um, but, but writing a lot, um, during that time. And I'm sure that made you grow a lot as an individual, right? I think so. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, I mean, you think about it too, Joe, like when I was there, I was 22, you know, like this is, <laughs> this is the, I, I don't know, your, your post-college, um, I don't, I don't know what most people are doing at that time, but I was, <laughs> I was reading and writing on a banana plantation. <laughs> that's certainly a unique experience. I don't think that's, that's the norm. <laughs> so, so when I, when I was speaking with Deepun and I, I keep referencing back to his conversation, but I think there are a lot of overlaps uh, between the two. He made a point of saying that, we don't want service to turn into quote unquote helping meaning, you know, giving yourself a pat on the back, look how great of a person I am type of experience or, you know, uh-huh. using it as, as a chance to go to a faraway country and get some good Instagram pictures. And I think what mm-hmm. he's cautioning against is just if, if we're trying to serve the service should be for the other people. And it should be to make a positive material long-term impact on the communities in which you're serving. So my question here is, did you notice any of that, like the ne- negative aspects of, of what I just talked about in the Peace Corps? And if so, how do they prevent and discourage it? And, and one of the things I, I would imagine is that the long-term nature of the assignment kind of discourages that in and of itself. But if there's anything else you could speak to there, I'd be interested to know. Yeah, I I personally didn't um, witness that, right? So first of all, you're so isolated. Everybody's doing their own like own thing, and so the way I can liken it to like so since then I've um, I've done a lot of yoga. <laughs> so like you can go to yoga. So this is the thing: is like you can go to yoga class and lay there, right? Like you literally can go to yoga class and lay there, right? Like you don't actually have to do anything, sure. and you know, like that's like your own choice, right? And so, does it bother you as a participant of yoga that other people are, you know, you know, phoning it in or like laying there or whatever, you know, not really participating? I mean, it doesn't bother me, right? right because sure. I'm there for to 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 get what I can get out of it, right? And so that's kind of similar to how I feel about the Peace Corps service, obviously. You don't want a bunch of people, like like you're saying, jumping in there to um, for their own, I guess, selfish benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're focused on what you're doing, I don't know that it matters what other people are doing. Um, that's that's a great point. I I love that perspective in you know every every sense, right? Focus on what you can do better, not what other people are doing wrong. I, I really like that. And so 
I could see where Deepan is saying is like, oh, if you make it compulsory, people are just going to like join it and then like use it for their own selfish benefit. Okay. <laughs> is it not, is it, is it, is it, is it, you know, like if you, if you make it an institution, like, I mean, I think, I'm sure you're researching this like heavily against what, what happens in other countries, but like, you know, Germany has a year of service, right? Like they have this year, I don't know if it's between college and in, in high school or if it's after college, but they have this year where they, you know, you can go drive an ambulance for a year. It's just like, you have to, you have to do some form of service. It could be international. You could, you could make a pitch for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have a year of service. And so I, my, my thing is, is like, if you make that the default that you are doing service, as opposed to the like abnormal, oh, it's so unusual that Carrie decided to, you know, go do Peace Corps or whatever, you know, you can also, whatever. It, if you make it the default, are you like, is it net, you know, like, is it going to net out better? And I would say yes because you're going to put it in the mind's eye of more people, right? Like this is a normal thing to do. This is something that you might enjoy doing. This is something that you might get something out of. Yeah. There are going to be people who are, you know, frankly, like just to use the metaphor a little bit further laying on their yoga mat. (laughs) Yes, there are going to be those people, but are there going to be more people that kind of get a little interested in, in, in what's going on? Yeah, I think so. I think you're right. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think there would be a net positive. Of course, there are always going to be some bad apples in, in any bunch. But if the net effect is positive, then uh, what is there to complain about, really? So I, I'd like to dive a little deeper into whether you think service should be compulsory in the, in the United States, or should it just be something that we strive to make the norm and the expectation? Uh, meaning, should we significantly increase funding to programs like AmeriCorps and Teach for America and um, the Peace Corps to the point where everybody who wants to do it can do it easily? Um, or do we just go ahead and mandate that everyone is going to serve? What, what do you think is a better approach and why? Right? I think it depends on what your, what your end objective is. Well, the end objective that I'm... We, I'm, have, we have, like, think about the institutions that we have that are compulsory in this country, what is compulsory in this country? What do you have to do as an American? Well, you have to pay taxes, right? Sure. What else? Uh, you have to go to school, right? Right. Yes. Education is compulsory. You have compulsory public education. Um, Anything else? <laughs> I, I'm struggling to come <laughs> up with anything. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I'm coming up with those two because I have experience with them. But so, and what, why, what's our point? Why do we make educate? Why don't we just say, oh, well, do what you want? Uh, I think because it's, when a when it positive, it's a net positive to society, right? To have a well-educated populace, especially in a democracy where people are voting. Mm. So if you think that this is a net positive... Why wouldn't you make this a part of uh, that experience, right? Like it doesn't even, you could, we could think of, you can conceive of it as like your 13th grade. Like it doesn't, you know what I'm saying? Like you could actually put it between 11 and 12. Like you could have a year of service when you're, you know, 17 and then you come back and do your final year of high school 
Yeah, that, I mean, I think they have 13 grades in Canada. Okay. So that's an interesting concept. And the only real thing that I can come up with to counter that argument is, you know, why, why shouldn't we make this compulsory is because that doesn't tend to go over well in America, right? It feels un-American to make people do things. You know, we, we just struggle is, to come up. But is, I agree with that. But is public education un-American? Because no. like, we're the ones who invented it. Right. <laughs> like, you, like we literally invented public education. Horace Mann, right? Like that, that we, we invented it. And that is like, honestly, that is a huge part of like kind of the, you know, it, I, I think it's a huge building block in this whole like American dream and anyone can do anything and blah, blah, blah. And like, and it's not like, oh, because we have public education, but public education is a big part of that. Right. Sure. And, and the, even the idea that we, you know, back when we decided to have it, like, as like, Hey, everyone's going to school that there were riots over it, by the way, when we, there were riots when, when the public school system came online. Wow. I didn't realize that. Yeah. 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 I, maybe this is another podcast episode, but like, I'm like, what, how do you get, how do you make things compulsory? And yeah, it was because it was, uh, they were seeing that as, you know, so there was a rival school system at the time, which was the Catholic school system. And, and folks were seeing this as, you know, uh, like an affront to that. Um, and then, you know, then it got to like cultural values and yeah. So. Sure. So that that's interesting because this is one of the, the, the tripping points that I've come to in exploring this is how, how do you make something compulsory and, and having that insight into how, public education became compulsory and how controversial it was, um, I think is important for this argument as well. Because I, I agree with yeah. you. I think, I think it's important, but I think it's really hard to sell. But the thing is, is like everything that's important is hard to sell. Sure. But we, we all got here somehow. Do you know what I'm saying? Like we got to, to this version of what America is or what an American is somehow because right. somebody sold something somewhere. Right. And right. like, I mean, e even democracy, right. Like even, even that stuff was like controversial <laughs> at some point. Um, and so I think that like, if it's something that you think is in a worthwhile objective um, for, you know, and then uh, I like, it's hard to, you know, the devil is always in the details, right? right? Like the devil is always in the like execution of the idea, right? Like, cause now you'll get to like public education and people will be like, Oh, there's so many, there's so many problems with it, which is true. But even the idea, like you, <laughs> we're, we're, it, it was James Clear was like, you can't fix a habit you don't have. Right. right. Like he's like, right. you can't, you know, you can't get better at a habit you don't have. Right. So like, and that's the same thing is like, you can't fix a system that you don't have. You can't fix, fix like, you know, a shared ideal that you don't have. Right. right. So it's like, um, and it, like, I guess there's probably a debate to be had about the best way to, um, like what you're saying, sell it. Well, I think that's an important um, point is, it, is that, you know, it, it's not going to be perfect, but if it is a net positive to the country, then, we have to accept it's not going to be perfect at first and, and take the first step and see 
what comes of it and then identify the issues and address those issues point by point to make it better. And that's, you know, that's really why I'm exploring this, this topic, because I think it is important and I think it's challenging and it's, it's difficult to talk about and to implement. Um, but through conversations like these, I think we make a little bit of progress and get some other people thinking about it and talking about it as well. Yeah. I, I, so I think, so, you know, obviously, you know, I, I can conceive of, you know, the first half of my career at this point, like as some form of service, right. In, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, obviously I was paid as a teacher, but uh, like I, is it something that I'm, I'm on board with? Yes. Because I chose, I, I chose that path. Sure. Um, and uh, it would be interesting it would be interesting actually to hear what, you know, potentially some of um, my ex-students might think of it. Um, that might be a, just a, a totally different perspective. I don't know. Um, yeah, that would, that, that would be interesting. So to kind of switch gears a little bit to your time teaching, um, you were in the New York City public school system? Yeah, that's correct. I, I taught um, high school history and English in a public school in the Bronx and also eighth grade in uh, ELA. Um, okay. It was a middle high school. Yeah. So, um, and I taught for six years. Six years. And was your experience generally positive or negative? And why, why did you end very, up? Very, yeah, it's very positive. Um, and, you know, <laughs> frankly, why did I end up leaving? I, you know, kind of moving down a pretty well-worn path toward um, school administration mm-hmm. um, just during my time there. I think if you enjoy something, um, you tend to get good at it and it becomes this positive feedback loop. Um, and so I just gained more and more responsibility um, in my time there. And, um, you know, at some point, my, my principal, my assistant principal pulled me aside and said, you know, this is We'd like you to, you know, consider, you know, administration. We'd like you to think about, you know, being, we, we want you to be like, you know, the third or fourth principal of the school kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, let's, let's get you in a program for that. And when they did that, I kind of was, took a step back and I was like, whoa, is this what I'm doing? <laughs> you know, like, am I, am I going to be principal mercy here? Or like, I just, I know that I was interested in education because of, well, I was interested in the, the systemic aspects of it. And you know, I was teaching in New York City and, um, you know, uh, Bloomberg, Mayor Bloomberg was um, mayor at the time. And him and Joel Klein uh, kind of did a, they, they I, I would say, made some positive um, changes in the New York City school system. And our school benefited from that, right? Like my experience, like, was a direct indicator of, those positive changes. And I said, is there, is there a different path forward? Um, you know, Bloomberg's not an educator. Joel Klein is not an educator, right? Like, <clears throat> and so I took a step back and when I did, it was a huge can of worms. Um, and I started reading a little bit about uh, other things and what else I might, might do. Um, and I ended up getting pretty interested in entrepreneurship. Um, and, through that, I, I 
went to, to business school um, at UT Austin. And once I got there, I was like, oh, my God, I knew nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I had, you know, I studied history and sociology and like had never even heard of time value of money until I went to business school, which, you know, maybe makes me, you know, ignorant. Um, but I remember learning about it and like looking at the guy next to me and was like, what? I was like, you got to tell some people about this. <laughs> um, so I kind of toggled in the direction of finance um, in business school. And through that, I ended up at Intel and their finance arm, although I've, I've um, moved around a bunch since then and currently in sales there. Um, but yeah, I think it's part of me is like, <laughs> This is all a part of the experience, and I'm like learning and growing to hopefully one day be able to, to give it back in a more powerful way. Um, it's a really I cool path. I haven't I, figured I that one out yet, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> and it's okay. We're all we're all working on it, right? So I, I have yeah. this kind of idea bouncing around in my head that I wanted to float past you and see what you think. So I spent two years as part of the iMentor program in New York City. And mm-hmm. I was in a high school in Harlem, and it was primarily minority students and primarily students whose parents were first-generation immigrants, many of whom were like undocumented in- immigrants and people who had not been to college themselves. So a major um, focus of this program was helping these students get into and succeed in college because they didn't have the support at home that that many other students would have. So what I learned through that experience was that many, many students, especially in in urban school districts, don't have the support they need um, at home or even in school due to lack of resources to be successful both at the high school level and then at the, the collegiate level. So one of one of the ideas that I had is a program similar to Teach for America, but rather than after graduating college, after graduating high school, and it would take recent high school graduates and put them back into these school districts as teacher teachers assistants or teachers aides to help free up some bandwidth of the teacher and to provide additional resources to the students who, who might need more guidance and not be getting it uh, at home. What do you think of that idea? I, any, any idea that gets more, I guess, focus and attention and resources on helping like you. So there's, so this is, okay. What we were trying to do, um, like, the, so my experience teaching was at a school, a public school in the Bronx, right? And it was called Urban Assembly School for Applied Math and Science, AMS for short. It's still there. It's still running really well. Um, what we were trying to do at AMS was, is like, what you're saying is, like, it's almost insurmountable, mm-hmm. but there was, it, 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 and any progress in that positive direction because like one time you know we were all sitting down um it was you know a team of teachers and and, and administrators and you know I, I i turned to ken and i was like it's almost like we're educating our kids kids not our kids right like not our students but their kids sure because you're planting a seed so like and that's another that's an expression that i took from from the peace corps service and i've used it actually 
many times since is like you can count the the seeds in an apple, but you can't count the apples in a seed, right? And so like any sort of pos- yeah, any sort of positive movement, and you just don't know, like you don't know where that impact ends up, right? Like I most recently used it with a VP at Intel that you know he just he there were some small things that he did that really frankly encouraged me, and I you know I was like this is you know he needs to hear this, um, um, but I I also feel like even if you can't directly tie it back to, to like, you know, some measurable outcome or objective, but you're, you're doing the right, um, you're, you have the positive intentions and you're doing the right work. Um, I think that you have to have some faith that that's adding. <laughs> I, I agree. I don't know. I, I don't, yeah. No, I, I, I think that's I perfect. I, I love that that quote. You can't count the seeds in an apple, but you, or I'm sorry, you can count the seeds in an apple, but you can't count the apples in a seed. That's fantastic. Yeah. So, Carrie, I think that's a good I, place for us to cut it. But do you have anything else you want to say generally about national service? <laughs> Let's do it. Uh, you know, sign me up. And also, like the thing is, is like. Um, you know, it's obvious a lot of times, like it's obvious to do it younger, but I think that like people arrive at these things at all different times in their life. You know, for example, my dad is probably nearing retirement now. Mm -hmm. He's, he's a, he's an excellent entrepreneur. Like, is there some way, like we have this big generation coming, I think it's the boomers, right? Well, I think my dad might be a little bit younger, but like, they they're coming up on retirement and like, what does retirement look like? Can we, can we conceive of that differently? Um, can we, you know, is there, is there some way we can kind of involve that human capital and resource, like with like great experience um, in this, right? Like, so it doesn't just have to be when you're like young and, you know, like, any any mid mid career professionals that are, you know, looking to make a switch. Like, there's a lot of um, opportunities, I think, um, beyond just the, the traditional, well, not traditional, but I, I think we traditionally think of this as something you do when you're young and don't have a ton of responsibilities. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's, that's yeah. a great point. Um, Carrie, where can people find you if they'd like to talk more? Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, they're more than welcome to email me. Um, it's just Carrie Murphy at Gmail, um, spelled that way, or um, they can find me on Twitter at Carrie Mupp. Um, and those are probably the best two methods. Perfect. Well, I'll put those in the show notes and I really appreciate you coming on. This has been a fun, eye-opening conversation. Yes. Awesome, Joe. Let me know how else I can help. Okay. Thanks, Carrie. Thanks for spending your time listening to the show. If you'd like to discuss national service or anything else, shoot me a message on Twitter at Joseph C. Wells. I'd love to hear from you. And make sure to sign up for my newsletter at josephcwells.com so we can stay in touch. Until next time, take care and thanks for listening.